Well, good morning, church. I'm very happy to be here with you all this morning. We are continuing our series on Abraham, the father of the faithful, and this morning we come to chapter 18. And in this chapter, we see an interesting interaction take place. It is a supernatural interaction. It is an interaction between Abraham and three men, according to verse 2, as we will read. But these three men, they're not ordinary men. Two of these men are angels, and one is the Lord himself. This is, again, what is called in, in Scripture by theologians, uh, excuse me, called by theologians a theophany, a physical manifestation of the Lord appearing on the scene. The Lord visits Abraham. Now, when the Lord visits, that means we should take note. How does the Lord act in this visitation? How is Abraham acting? What is Sarah doing? What should we do? Friends, at the revelation of the Lord, when the Lord makes himself present, when he comes on the scene, what should we do? What should we anticipate? Now, God might not physically manifests here before our eyes in a physical way, but indeed he has revealed himself in his holy word, and moreover, he dwells inside of us. This supernatural interaction between Abraham and God is therefore of utmost application for us this morning, saints, for how much more is the Lord before us? The title of the sermon this morning is, When the Lord Appears. When the Lord appears. And we're going to read this story of this interaction and pray that the Spirit teaches us as we examine this passage this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. Genesis chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting there at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite to him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent uh, to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have this pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? 
Let's read this passage, uh, this, this verse together. Uh, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Let's remain standing as we pray, go before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we, um, we need you, Lord, to make this passage shine brightly in our hearts. Oh, Lord, would you transform your people by the power of your word? Oh, Lord, let us be in submission to this word. Let us learn from this word. Uh, Holy Spirit, be the true teacher this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So this whole chapter, uh, in verse 1, it begins, Now the Lord appeared to Abraham. Let it first be understood that the Lord does, in fact, appear. And here's what we see in chapter 18. We see that God is revealed as the faithful God who desires to interact with the faithful. He desires to appear before his servants and make his presence known. This is how God is revealed. Now some, again, we need, to, we need to touch more on this point. Some might argue that it's not clear that these men in these verses uh, are, you know, two angels in the Lord himself. Uh, and so that's important to understand what this passage is saying. So before we jump into this, we need to look at what the scripture is saying and see how this actually com comes out. Uh, so we have good scriptural indicators that one of these men is the Lord himself. Moreover, verse 1 says, the Lord appeared. God is here in this process. Um, but here, here's what we see. We see in verse 22, it indicates that the angels left to approach Sodom. But the Lord, that's all caps in, in, in the Bible, that means that it is saying Yahweh, remained there. However, if you go to 19 verse 1, there are only two angels that are approaching Sodom. Therefore, this third individual cannot be accounted for as a mere angel, uh, but it must be the Lord, since the Lord, Yahweh, remained, according to verse 22. Moreover, uh, if you look at verse 10 and verse 14 and 13 and compare those, we see the first person pronoun, I. This shows uh, that the one speaking in verse 10, who is clearly among these visiting men, is attributed uh, to, as Yahweh himself, right? This is a miraculous encounter with two angels and with God himself. We must understand that God wants to fellowship with his servants. God wants to be involved in the life of his servants. This is a great fellowship that we are seeing take, take place. And again, even though it looks different for us, it is available to us. We have a fellowship, a great fellowship, an interaction with the Lord. Again, this is certainly a unique situation, a unique manifestation, but there are great principles which we can draw from this story, this true story, that are infinitely valuable for you and I. This story, Genesis 18, it's been divinely inspired, preserved for us to learn from. 
And it is with this line of, of thought we must ask ourselves when we have a deep sense of the presence of the Lord, when the Lord appears in our lives, what, what is happening? What is going on? What, is, what should be the appropriate response of the faithful? Moreover, what is God's response? What is God doing? Why does God show up in our lives? So what we're going to do is we're going to break down this passage and we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at what the faithful do. How is Abraham responding? What is Abraham doing when God comes on the scene? And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, we're going to look at what the Lord is doing. Why has God appeared here? So let's look at these two. Let's start with the faithful's response. What do the faithful do when God appears, when God comes on the scene? Here is the response of the faithful when the Lord approaches before, before uh, Abraham. It is fully devoted, prompt, sacrificial, lowly, hospitable service rooted in a desire to fellowship with God. This is a natural result for anyone who is encountering the Lord. This is the only appropriate response when the Lord is present. Look at this verse 2. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to the ground. This is the first response of Abraham when he encounters the master. Worship is the appropriate response of the faithful saint. Friends, this is going to involve more than just singing a few songs on Abraham's part. This is going to involve service and sacrifice. And we're going to talk about that, but it would be a shame if we didn't start off by asking the question, what is motivating this behavior? Again, I said that it's fully devoted, prompt, sacrificial, lowly, hospitable service, but it's rooted in a desire to be with the master, a desire to fellowship. Look at this, verse 3, and Abraham said, my Lord, which is interesting, he's addressing one of these men. Again, proof that this is probably the theophany, that there is someone in charge of this trio, the Lord, master. He says, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. What sparked all of Abraham's actions that we are about to look into was a desire for the Lord simply not to pass by. He wanted to know and fellowship with the master. He wanted to spend time with the master. And yes, we are going to talk about service this morning. We are going to talk about sacrificial service this morning. In, indeed, there is an appropriate response of service. However, any act of service should always have this relational aspect, driving that service. Abraham, he does a lot of serving, but it stemmed from this idea of being with his master. Look at this, verse 4. He says, please, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree. He wants this trio to stay. This is traditionally something that is done when you are welcoming someone. You wash their feet. He wants them to stop traveling, to stay, to get comfortable. Abraham didn't want them to keep on going, going about on their business. He wanted the master to stop and to visit his servant. So Abraham, he plans his acts of service. He, he will have them wash their feet, prepare food, be refreshed. And verse 5 says... 
after that you may go on. Why? Since you have visited your servant. All of this act of of service that Abraham is, is going to do, it's all about him visiting with the master. With the master staying, visiting, making himself comfortable in the presence of Abraham. He was trying to get nothing out of the master except a mere moment with him. Brothers and sisters, do we long for this type of fellowship with God, with our master? Do we recognize him as Abraham did, the weight of the master's presence alone? Is that the driving force behind our service? Is this deep sense of fellowship with God something that is driving your life, driving your actions? Is your service void of this appropriate recognition of the divine fellowship with the Lord? Any act of service before the Lord should stem from a deep, desirous fellowship with God and nothing more. Just the pure joy of God himself. It is the most valuable thing. And brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit, God dwells in our hearts. Are we excited to have the guests that we have within us? To have the Lord not pass us by? Is this how we feel? Is this how we serve? So many are burnt out in ministry, and it's because they have lost sight of the glory and the divine fellowship with the master that they are serving. See him this morning. Love him this morning. And then and only then will you be serving from the correct heart. Indeed, this is the appropriate view we should have of the master. And indeed, it does lead to service. We see many things about service, but we see that it is first prompt service. It is timely. It is urgent Verse 2, he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. So, uh, verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make the bread. Verse 7, Abraham also ran to the herd and he hurried and he prepared. Right, he has a sense of urgency. This is the heart of the faithful. It is immediate service. It is urgent service to the Lord. Moreover, we need to pause and consider Abraham is... 99 years old. (laughs) He is old, okay? He is old and he is quickly serving. Verse 1, despite the heat of the day, which arguably for this ancient nomadic way of living, it was supposed to be a time of rest. It was really hot. You're not going to be working at this time. In the heat of the day, he has this urgency. He needs to work. He needs to serve the Lord. Abraham is diligently and promptly working, a sense of urgency in his service. And the question for us is, why would Abraham be acting so urgently? Well, the only reason a 99-year-old man would be rushing around like this is because Abraham realizes that these visitors are special. He knows this is an important moment. These are important guests. So, For Abraham, everything else except worship and service goes on the back burner. Abraham urgently is serving his master as priority number one in his life at this moment. When the Lord appears, when the Lord is present, he is the first person, the first most important thing that should be on our hearts. 
Whether Abraham's rest was ruined didn't matter. Whether it was the heat of day did not matter. Whether there were other tasks, it didn't matter in this moment. This was the most important moment, right? Imagine uh, you're at work, you know, you're very busy, and let's say you get a call from, like, your spouse. She says, oh, I need you at home. There's an emergency, right? You're going to quickly respond to that. You're not going to look, you know, talk to your wife, say, oh, okay, uh, I'll be there. Maybe it's an emergency. Okay, I'll be there at some other point. Uh, maybe at the end of the day, I'll stop by, right? That's going to get you in some trouble. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, because it's important, you need to respond right away, right? That's the point. And the point is, the Lord is the most important for Abraham. This is what is causing him to act so urgently, to act so quickly, for Abraham, everything else is on the back burner because he has, here's the point, his urgency shows his view of his guests. Friends, is there urgency to serve the Lord in, in your life, in my life? Do we view the Lord with this kind of importance, importance in which we drop everything to quickly and urgently serve our Savior? Do we have this view of God that demands urgency above everything. Urgency to serve God above working, above your job, your day job, and above your family even, above everything, right? It says that you must hate your father and your mother, right? That God needs to be the most important thing, and that should result in this urgent service, this urgency to serve the Lord. Church, we may not have, again, a theophany before us, but we, do we realize that there is a physical promised return of the Savior who is coming back to this earth, that we have an important guest arriving soon? Where is our urgency? Are we spreading the gospel? Why have we let our service and our worship dry up? Do we realize how infinitely important our guest is? And notice, friends, again, age matters not here. Abraham was 99 years old. He doesn't chalk up service to the Lord as something that was done in the past. He rather forces his old aching bones to quickly serve the most important guest he will ever have. This is the response when we realize that the Lord is present. When the Lord appears on the scene, this is how this, the heart of the faithful responds. Old bones move again. He is that important, more important than anything else, than our rest, than our work. He is number one. And also notice here that the type of worship that is, that is happening here in service, it's sacrificial. It's costly and sacrificial. Verse six, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd, took a tender and choice calf, and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. <clears throat> now, it's been noted by commentators that by this time, Abraham and Sarah probably had many servants. Uh, there's something to be said about this all taking place. The patriarch and the lady of the house doing so much of this work themselves Sure, they, they had some hands with the servants, but they're directly involved in this service. Therefore, it's worth mentioning the obvious sacrifice of time 
We put a premium on time, especially in our culture, don't we? But they're willing to sacrifice, firstly, their, their time to be involved in the direct service and worship of, of their master. Moreover, in, in ancient cultures, they didn't have the latest appliances that would make this an easy uh, kind of thing. We read it in a verse or two and say, oh, okay, they prepared dinner, right? They're preparing a, a massive amount of food, and they're doing it in an ancient culture, all right? This is probably going to take hours and hours and hours to prepare this, this food, um, this is no easy uh, undertaking. Again, note the amount of food that's prepared. It's, uh, it's abundant. One commentator noted that three measures of flour was 21 quarts. Moreover, Abraham himself chooses the tender and choice calf, the good calf for the preparation. He is breaking out the good stuff for these visitors. Abraham is offering the best. One only uses large amounts, uh, you know, large quantities of good supplies for important occasions. Again, all of this is reflective of how Abraham is viewing his guests. How do we view, again, the Lord? Do we sacrifice anything at all for our divine guest? Do we give God our best? Do we give him the most? Think about every aspect of your life. Pray, go before the Lord, Lord, Am I offering the best to you, the best of my time, the best of my finances, the best of my service? Is the quality of our service in our ministry the finest? The natural response to encountering the Lord should always be offering the finest that we have to offer. Moreover, again, the text seems to imply that Abraham himself did not partake in the feasting but was instead standing and available to serve and wait on his guests. Verse 8, Abraham was standing by them under the tree as they ate. This again reflects the point made earlier, this main point that when we serve God, we serve not to get. Our sacrifice, our service is simply for the joy of being with him. You see, long before Chick-fil-A employees were saying, my pleasure, the faithful servant Abraham served with exceeding joy. Indeed, the saint, it should be noted, should serve from this exceeding joy, the pleasure of being with him, offering the finest. Friends, this morning, if we are sitting back, if we're stagnant, if we're doing nothing, if we're serving no one, we're coming to church, we're hearing the word, we're going home, and that is the extent of our lives do, there's one or two things. Either one, the Lord has not appeared in our life, or two, we don't recognize the weight of the Lord. I can think of no other reasons why our lives should not reflect the kind of service and the kind of love and joy that Abraham is, is exhibiting here in our text. Abraham is reflecting what a faithful servant does in the presence of the Lord. Again, verse 1 start, starts this whole thing. The Lord appeared, and then all of this took place. That is when all of this happened. That is what sparked this fully devoted, prompt, sacrificial, joyful, hospitable service. It was the appearing of the Lord. The Lord has come. Do not let him pass by you this morning. Treasure him, beseech him, give to him, enjoy him. 
This is the response of the faithful servant. However, as important as our response is, what the Lord does and says when he appears is infinitely more important. What is God doing here? Why has God visited his servant? Let's look now at the response of God, what God does when he appears before us. Now, it must be noted that if one of these individuals is indeed a manifestation of God, which I believe is the best and correct interpretation of this text, then it must be understood that when the trio speaks, that is when we read in the text, they said, we can safely assume the Lord, who is the leader of the trio, which we can also assume from verse 3, takes communicatory precedence in the process. Meaning, if by, uh, it is by no means unfaithful to the text to assume the phrase they said in the passage is an expression or at least in accordance with the thoughts of God that he is trying to communicate to Abraham. So I wanted to throw that out there in case people had questions again. I know this can be confusing with this theophany and more than one person uh, being present, you know, these angels being in the presence of the Lord as well. Um, but I would I'd just like to take note of that as we read this. And with that said, we can look at the first time that these men speak and that is in verse 5. Here is what is amazing. We see that God, how he interacts, he allows Abraham to serve. He allows Abraham to serve. Verse 5, and they said, so do, have you, do as you have said. What is amazing to note here is the fact that God, if this is God, needs not our service. I doubt that these heavenly beings uh, in the presence of God, mind you, leading the trio, were tired and hungry. If God is amongst this party, they don't need Abraham's service. They have the Lord. Right? In Acts 17.25, we see this description of God with, uh, that, that Paul presents. He says, uh, God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. Psalm 50, verse 10 indicates, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So, you see, if this is indeed the Lord, then this response in verse 5, so do as you have said, communicates not only that Abraham wants to fellowship with God, as it was made clear in earlier in verse 5, but that the Lord, too, wants to fellowship with Abraham. Oh, friends, this is amazing that God would allow, allow this to happen and actually say, okay, yes, Abraham, you can go and serve and we'll stick around. This is a, an amazing response of our Lord that the all-powerful, all-knowing creator God allows us to do something for him. It's incredible. I, I'm reminded of like a father and a son, right? Like uh, the father maybe is fixing a car, right? And the son, can I help? Is there anything I can do to help? And the father says, doesn't really need the son's help. If anything, the son's probably going to get in the way, right? But he says, sure. Yes, you can help me. That is essentially what is taking place here. If this is indeed God. And this is something to ponder, that the God of the universe, the Lord of all, wants to fellowship with you. He doesn't, you know, he's not looking for a non-relational, robotic pointless slave. 
He doesn't need anyone to serve him. He's God. He doesn't need that. He's infinite. Rather, he wants you to serve him so you can be with him, so you can fellowship with him. It's an act of grace that the Lord grants Abraham the pleasure of this service in verse 5. And you too can serve the master, though he is not in need supreme. By the way, all of these other gods, these gods of myth, mythological origin, they always needed people to serve them. That's why they created all, all their slaves and all of this in their, their stories. But our God is a God who has no need, but he wants you. That's incredibly powerful. He accepts our service. Christian who is serving wearily, who is run down, who is tired, who feels the church is their responsibility to build, recognize God doesn't need your service. He wants your service because he wants you to spend time with him. He wants the fellowship. He wants to grow his servant. He wants time with you. And we see that God is just so relational here, so willing to, to be with his servants. We see he deeply cares for individuals. Uh, verse 9 the majority of what God is talking about here, it's, it's, it's focused on his servants. He's, he's very caring for individuals. He says, then they said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? When I read this, my mind immediately went to the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord called right after Adam and Eve had sinned. The Lord called out to man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Now, the God of the universe is obviously omniscient. God knew, if God is in this presence, he knew where Adam is. He knows where Sarah is. So why is he asking this question? Where is your wife, Sarah? Well, he knows she's listening, number one. And it points to this. It points to the fact that there is a deep facet of God's character and nature that is relational. The God of the Bible is undeniably relational. This is part of what makes him completely distinct from, from all other concepts of God. If you have the God of Islam, right? God, in his triune niche, he's always been relational. He's always had this, this, this relational aspect rooted in his character. And while Abraham in the passage clearly seeks fellowship with God, with the Lord, and the Lord blesses him with that fellowship, it's amazing that God is still concerned with Sarah's presence. He wanted Sarah there. He's asking about her. Moreover, recall verse 6, and this is interesting. Sarah was responsible in helping prepare this feast. Right? She, Abraham went to his wife and says, Sarah, quickly, prepare this flower. Right? She's doing some of the service, but now she is not waiting by the tree with her husband. She's in the tent. Sarah, in fact, did serve, but the Lord still asks, where are you? Where are you? Yes, we serve. But are we, in any real sense, in our service, seeking this relation, relational aspect? Is God asking, where are you? Even though, though you have served him, is he asking that question to you this morning? Perhaps we're like Martha from Luke chapter 10, forgetting the deep fellowship with the Lord that is available to us. Remember Martha, she was working and working and she forgot to sit by the feet of her Savior. 
Friends, he seeks us. He wants relationship with us. You who are distant from the Lord, realize he seeks you. When God appears, he wants you. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants you. God doesn't need our service. God doesn't want our service apart from our fellowship, apart from our adoration towards him. This is, again, a different God than the God of Islam, a different God than the the Hindu gods. This is truly a gracious being who cares about you, who wants you, who wants your heart, and he wants your fellowship. So he, he's very relational. He wants relationship with us. And moreover, what makes this point so amazing is the fact that he knows us. He knows us deeply. He knows everything about us. When God comes on the scene, he, he actually knows so much about us that he tends to reveal some pretty deep personal truths about us. God deeply knows us. So Sarah laughed to herself. That could be translated also within herself. This is inside. Saying, after I have become old, am I to have this pleasure? My Lord also being old. Verse 13, but the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? It's important to note that this was likely not something done out loud. Remember, she's in the tent. It says that she's laughing to herself. It was within herself. She was inside the tent eavesdropping and she laughed to herself. She hears the promises of God. She laughs. The Lord, however, knows the heart of Sarah. He knows her inward parts. He knows her lack of faith. He knows Sarah deeply and intimately, even if she was behind that curtain. The omniscience of the Lord knows no bounds. Friends, no matter how hard you try to hide from God, he knows you. He knows what's really going on in your deepest parts. And again, playing on the last point, the fact that he wants a relationship with us should make our jaw drop. And perhaps, here's here's another awesome thing about our God. The, The interaction between God and man, it is so raw and genuine. It is, it's how things actually are. Sarah continues to try to hide her lack of faith. And it says, verse 15... Sarah denied it, that is, denied her laughing. However, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, the Lord, said, no, you did laugh. You know, my generation and the generation below me were all about, we use this word authentic and genuine a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that in in culture, but they, they use this word, the God of the Bible only seeks us in genuine ways. He doesn't entertain the fake Sarah. He's very real, very personal. He knows her completely, and he calls her out because he wants true relationship, true fellowship. If God had not said, no, Sarah, you did laugh, and it was just like, oh, okay, that would not be anything spectacular. And while this is a hard reprimand, this is also a beautiful thing, that God is so genuine in his interactions with mankind. He's so real. It's not a delusion. Some people say, oh, this is a God delusion. No, God is very real, and he's very honest and very truth-focused. In fact, he is described himself as the truth. 
our God interacts with us, knowing deeply the reality of our hearts. And, and look, look what's happening here. Common human response, right? Sarah denies it. Why? Because she's afraid. She's afraid of her lack of faith. She's afraid, oh no, I've been found out. I've been found out. The Lord sets her straight. says, yeah, you, you have been found out. And your lies are not going to help you here, Sarah. You did laugh. But what's amazing is God is still faithful, is he not? If you continue reading in Genesis, he has such grace for Sarah. He could have just said, oh no, you laughed, all right, fine. I'll take this blessing away. He does not do that. He has such grace. He is so faithful to do as he has said. Despite the fact that our God does know our lack of faith, he is always faithful. Again, at face value, this seems like kind of a negative thing, you know, but really it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing that the Lord is faithful to us, that he knows us. Uh, Psalm 139, I just put three verses here, but the whole psalm is really incredible about as far as how, the, how deeply the Lord knows us. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I get up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path. And my lying down, you are acquainted with all of my ways. And if God knows the secrets of the human heart, we must confront the reality of our lack of faith. We can't fool God with our lies. We cannot fake faithful service and worship to the Lord. He knows the depths of the human soul. He knows our disbelief. And whenever God comes on the scene and interacts with man... Sometimes it makes people uncomfortable because he will address our lack of faith. When God comes on the scene, he, he speaks truth. Sometimes truth hurts. As a matter of fact, if you never are hurt by a word, it's probably because you're lying to yourself. Truth sometimes could be a painful reality to face. But this is what happens when God appears. He reveals truth, sometimes deep inward personal truths, but those things will come out. He loves, he loves you anyway. Come out of hiding, right? Come out of hiding. He loves you anyway. Lastly, we see that God, despite knowing our hearts, is deeply faithful and powerful to do what he says. Uh, deeply faithful to fulfill his promises. Verse 10, he said, I will certainly return to you at this time next year, and behold, your wife Sarah will have a son. Verse 14 repeats it. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This was the most specific version of the promise yet. It finally gives the date, the long-awaited time frame. It's revealed after many years of waiting that in one year's time, God's promise would come to pass. It was certain, but verse 11 gives us insight into the human rationale as to why Sarah laughed. Why was this unbelievable? And verse, again, um, verse 11 reveals this. Now Abraham and Sarah were advanced, or were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. These are some old folks, okay? They are not in Sarah's mind, she is thinking, there is no way I am giving birth to a child. Some of us at like 40 and 50 are already having this thought. Never mind when you're as old as Sarah was, right? This was, 
completely absurd in her mind. That she's, she's probably given up on the promise at this point. That's, that's why she has this lack of faith. She's laughing. It's like, oh, I must have misheard the Lord or something. I don't know. It's not happening. And here we see highlighted that despite human circumstances, God is still all-powerful to do what he says. Remember again the guest who is present before them. It is God. God is omniscient, as we just saw. He's also omnipotent, all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. When God appears and interacts with humans, it is always a powerful and faithful interaction. Even when it goes against our reasoning. Actually, very often, God will put us in situations and circumstances that do go against our reasoning. And this is to highlight that he is the one bringing about the promise. That he is the one who holds power. When God is before man, when God appears, he highlights his power. The whole point of the Christian life is that it, in fact, is too difficult for us in and of ourselves. We must rely on the higher power of God. We must rely on Christ. We must rely on God coming through for us. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, right? Paul is talking about his thorn in the flesh, and he's so weak, and he's so weak, and, he's, and God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weakness so that the power of the Lord may dwell in me. Abraham and Sarah's age, what they perceived as a weakness in human terms, is what made the power of God shine so brightly in them. If they were not old, if they were not weak, then we probably wouldn't be reading about them thousands of years later. That is where the power lied because that is where God shined through. Friends, those things that seem impossible, that seem difficult for you, those things that maybe you're saying, oh, I'm too weak to deal with, it is perhaps the moments, in those moments where the Lord can most intimately and effectively work in your life. Jeremiah 32, 17, it says... O oh, Lord God, behold, you yourself have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Also says nothing is too difficult for him. In our text, he will powerfully be involved in the lives of the faithful, in the lives of the faithful. When he comes on the scene, this just happens. That humanly impossible thing, that unbearable suffering you are undergoing, it is nothing for his power. Nothing his power cannot deal with. Nothing too difficult for him. Saints, the Holy Spirit, God, lives in you. He is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power, his power, that works within us. And friends, our promises in the New Testament uh, Sometimes they're even more un unbelievable. They're even more uh, humanly impossible when we pause and actually think about what's happening. Right? The most difficult problem was not Sarah, you know, giving birth at an old age. The most difficult problem, the most humanly impossible problem that man has had to deal with is our sin. 
And we are not promised physical success or an easy life, but friends, we are promised that we will live forever with our God. We will have eternal fellowship, this fellowship that Abraham longed for, undisturbed for all eternity. 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And friends, I think we just get caught up in the Christian lingo and we forget how impossible this is when there is sin. Sin brings death, that is the consequence of it. But God has taken something that is humanly impossible and done something amazing. This is unbelievable, sinful humans fellowshipping for all eternity with a perfect being. We, who are much more like Sarah the liar, having a great communion with God, even reconciliation is not too difficult for our God. Again, false gods will not do this. They couldn't invite us into such a deep love while maintaining perfect justice. But our God displays power to do what is humanly impossible. A bigger display of Sa uh, than Sarah even becoming pregnant. That is the power of the gospel for those who believe. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This powerful interaction between God and Abraham and Sarah paved the way for an even more powerful interaction between God and all of humanity through the promised seed that dealt with sin that we could not deal with in our own strength. And Christ was raised from the dead. And we are promised, too, that we will be raised. Do we believe it? Do we view it as something that is humanly impossible but that God has done? Where is our awe? This is our hope. This is what all of those saints who have passed away are we're, we're hoping in, that they are now with, with Christ. This is what all of us should be living for. Those of us who seemingly carry this impossible curse of death and separation from God brought about by sin, it's been dealt with because God has come on the scene, because God appeared, because Jesus Christ came. This is the promise that we will live forever with Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful to powerfully bring it about. Nothing is too difficult for our God. When God appears, God interacts with man powerfully and he moves in, hum in humanly impossible circumstances for our good and for his glory. So we've seen what the faithful do, how the faithful respond when God appears, when God is with, with the faithful. What do the faithful do? And then we've seen, moreover and more importantly, what is God doing? And what we've seen too is that it is all very relational, and that he loves us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for this word. Oh, Lord, we pray that it powerfully resonates within us, Lord. We pray that we would seek you, uh, we would fellowship with you, and we would praise you for making this possible through Christ. Lord, thank you for taking that payment that we may have divine fellowship with you for all eternity. Bless us now as we go. In Christ's name, amen.